Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. We've got a titillating sounding topic today, don't we? Uh-huh. Yes, it is future sex. From Gay Talisa's Thy Neighbor's Wife to Octavia Butler's Lilith's Brood trilogy, we'll be talking about how writers have helped us to imagine the future of sex, sexuality, and relationships. Future Sex is also the title of our guest Emily Witt's first book, a personal and journalistic exploration of the possibilities of free love in today's world, and especially in today's America. Octavia, can you introduce Emily, who's sitting with us here now? Hell yeah. Emily Witt has written for The New Yorker, N Plus One, The New York Times, and The London Review of Books. She studied at Brown University, Columbia University, and the University of Cambridge, and was a Fulbright scholar in Mozambique, so she's pretty badass. She grew up in Minneapolis, and she now lives in Brooklyn. And also, full disclosure, Emily's a friend of ours, and it's really lovely to see you over here on this side of the planet. Yeah, so we're going to try to be objective, but it's kind of a love fest. A little bit. (laughs) True. (laughs) Um, So we'll be talking to Emily, then chatting about the wider theme, and then giving our book recommendations with Emily again. So stay tuned to Literary Friction. Okay, let's just jump right in there. Emily, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. And we've asked you to start with a reading, I think, from the beginning of the book, right? That's right. I was single, straight, and female. When I turned 30 in 2011, I still envisioned my sexual experience eventually reaching a terminus, like a monorail gliding to a stop at Epcot Center. I would disembark, find myself face to face with another human being, And there we would remain in our permanent station in life, the future. I had not chosen to be single, but love is rare and it is frequently unreciprocated. Without love, I saw no reason to form a permanent attachment to any particular place. Love determined how humans arrayed themselves in space. Because it affixed people into their long-term arrangements, those around me viewed it as an eschatological event messianic in its totality. My friends expressed a religious belief that it would arrive for me one day, as if love were something the universe owed to each of us, which no human could escape. I had known love, but having known love, I knew how powerless I was to instigate it or ensure its duration. Still, I nurtured my idea of the future, which I thought of as the default denouement of my sexuality and a destiny rather than a choice. The vision remained suspended, jewel-like in my mind, impervious to the storms of my actual experience, a crystalline point of arrival. But I knew that it did not arrive for everyone, and as I got got older, I began to worry that it would not arrive for me. Okay, thank you so much. Um, I wanted to start by just uh, reading one of the lines from the beginning of the book. Uh, which a lot of people, I think, have quoted in reviews, and I think it's even quoted on the Faber Proof, which is, I still envisioned my sexual experience eventually reaching a terminus, like monorail gliding to a stop at Epcot Center, which I just loved because it's a great, it's a brilliant analogy, but also um, I think it's a great way to open up the project. So can you talk a bit about that and and why you were inspired to write this book in the first place? Yeah, I... Um I, when I started writing the book about five years ago, I started thinking about it. I guess I thought of myself as a very conventional person with very conventional expectations, um, which meant I thought I was going to get married. But then it wasn't really happening. And um, 
I wanted to, you know, in my reality, my dating life was much more chaotic and uncontrollable, I guess. And I wanted to, I was interested in what had changed, why so many people I knew um, were getting married later or not at all and having all these years of our lives um, with these undefined sexual relationships. So I wanted to look at what had changed societally, you know, how to think of these relationships, how to describe them better. Um, but initially, I also saw it as sort of a journalistic project, a kind of cultural history of sex since 1990, since the invention of the internet. Yeah, and actually, you've talked about in other interviews that you were pushed much further towards the personal as the project went on. So was that something that was uncomfortable for you? Yeah, I didn't think my life was interesting enough to write about, and that was part of it. I also just, you know, I just, I'd never, I didn't present myself as a very sexual person. Um, so, what? you know. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I didn't, I didn't really ever watch porn. I just thought it wasn't for me. I definitely, you know, on internet dating, I, I went about it in the most conservative way possible, kind of where I just presented myself as an interesting person who'd read a lot of books, but wasn't, you know didn't mention anything about sex on my dating profiles. Um, you know, people that were in open relationships, I think I judged them as naive or maybe self-destructive. I, you know, I was, I was just really kind of close-minded in a lot of ways without realizing it at all. So did writing the book change you? Yeah. Profoundly. Profoundly. Yeah. Surprisingly. Yeah. I wasn't expecting to write some kind of cathartic personal narrative, but then it just happened. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the power of it, I think, because your reader comes along with you on that journey of exploration and mind changing and stuff. I think that's really, I think it's awesome women writing about sexual experience coming from whichever point they start from, whether they're in an alternative sexual community to begin with or coming from a place of much more kind of conventional stasis. I wanted to ask about this, yeah, like Carrie said, the relationship between your personal narrative and then the more journalistic voice. Did you ever find the kind of reportorial, if that's even a word, show and don't tell imperative restrictive did you ever feel compelled to do a bit more analysis, social analysis kind of stuff or not really? No, initially the the re repertorial objectivity was always an alibi for me. It it allowed me to go places and visit them without thinking that it was about me at all. You know, places like the orgasmic meditation circle where I just wouldn't have gone I think without some kind of excuse, official excuse that I could give to people. And it also, it, the idea that I was just reporting, I think also helped me, um, you know, be open-minded and not that I wasn't already disposed to be that way, but um, yeah, it, it, I could observe, it gave me an excuse really, yeah. And did you ever feel uncomfortably voyeuristic. I mean, I, su I suppose a lot of these communities that you were um, infiltrating, that's not quite the right word, but are, are in part about voyeurism. But I imagine with sex, there, there are lots of questions around that. Yeah, and it was more, you know, there were people in each of these communities that were kind of the diehard people that presented themselves publicly to the world. But then there were a lot of other 
seekers that were there for personal reasons to try and figure out things about themselves. And I always wanted to protect their identities and, um, you know, I felt a little, I always presented myself as a reporter, um, but, you know, some people just want to show up somewhere and, and do things and not be written about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, especially in those in those kind of areas. And this is what I think is so interesting about sex and why sex will continue to be written about as long as the human race exists, you know, future, past, whatever, is that it still feels like a secret to some people and it still feels like something that, like, there's an essential truth that we're yet to find, you know, this idea of future sex as being something that we can't yet grasp. Um, and do, do you feel that... Uh, I mean, obviously, you said writing the book changed you profoundly. Did, do you feel like you found the answers that you were seeking? I did, you know, no, yes, no, <laughs> there's no answers, right? right. Um, but I did, I did come to understand, you know, obviously I had read Freud and I know that all of our urges are sexual and all of that, you know, but I'd read that in a kind of, theoretical way always but somehow um doing a profound examination of my sexual identity and the mythologies that I was raised with about um how to present myself sexually what it would mean um you know ideas like that sex was a kind of currency for women and that you give sex and get something in return. These things that were always stories that I, I didn't even know that I was believing, but I had these a lot of these really arbitrary ideas in my head. And it was really going through and examining those and articulating those and then trying to articulate the identity I wanted to have um, really allowed me to sort of come into myself in a way. Um, you know... We all, there's this idea of coming out that we know now um, that gay people will go through this process of sexual identification that allows them to be at, in sync with the world and who they are. But I think everybody has a process like that to some degree that they can go through. Um, you know, that people who think that for whatever reason they think of themselves as normal, they don't have to do that same self-inquiry and declaration but I think it's good for all of us and if it's not too personal how well I I was just as I was reading this book very interested in how it changed the relationships that you were having at the time and how it's changed the relationships you're having now um, because so much of this is uh, investigating monogamy as an idea yeah, I mean, I wish I'd written about that more. So during the book, the first thing that happened was it just became a lot easier to meet people because, or just kind of connect sexually with people because I had always thought of myself as shy, but really I was just kind of experiencing sexuality and people hitting on me or whatever with a lot of panic and anxiety. And <laughs> suddenly I, w I like knew how to play with that energy a little bit better and it just made... So the first thing that happened was I just felt way more confident and suddenly just found it really easy to meet people for the first time in my life. And then for the last two years of the relationship I had, a, or sorry, of the book writing, I, I was in a relationship 
where it was frustrating because that person did not, um, that person wanted to be monogamous. Um, and so I had to be very careful, again, using the book as this alibi every time I went to a sex party or something. <laughs> um, and, and that relationship ended pretty much when I finished the book, which was good because then finally I could date without thinking about how I was going to have to process it intellectually and write about it. So now I'm in a new relationship. It's really, I don't know, probably the most serious one I've been in. <laughs> and and yeah, monogamy is just not something I want anymore. Or it's just impossible for me to imagine um, defining commitment in that way. It's really... Um, but negotiating how, what that looks like, it's not like I want to have, I don't think I want to have, you know, polyamory. I'm not really ready to have two boyfriends at once, but I do want to continue a process of sexual inquiry. And so, you know, what to tell each other, what to, um, what we do together and what we do apart. But yeah, I, I want to continue this experiment that I got to start I don't want to just stop it because the book's done yeah monogamy is I think a really healthy thing to interrogate at some point in your life regardless of what choices you make but as a social standard it's one that we see being broken all the time you know culturally um so would you say the future of sex is non-monogamous I think there's going to be a lot more discussion and openness about those kind of relationships. There's a lot of people that just don't want that. And I think those people should be respected also and not be seen as conservative or somehow, um, you know, it, it, there's a range of how people want to live. For me, it, it, I suddenly just realized, you know, I'm a person I've always liked to seek out new experiences. So why in this one part of my life would I be different? Um, and yeah, I, th I do think the future will be more legal structures, more social recognition, more discussion of how to define families that aren't centered on a monogamous couple. Um, how to raise children in situations where different, you know, um, with a range of different kinds of relationships. I hope it goes in that direction. I feel like that's where it's been slowly moving. And even just demographically, if you look at the numbers, um, people just don't get married as much. Mm. It's funny having this discussion and reading this book just after I got married. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely made me think about some of the choices that I'd made in my life. I mean, I didn't it didn't feel like a judgmental book, but it was certainly um it makes you rethink a lot of the the structures that exist in society. Let's talk about some of the um different communities and people that you met during this book because that's really the journey that you take. Um and I, you mentioned orgasmic meditation earlier, and I think that was one of the most interesting communities to me, um, just because it's so specific in its uh, practices and its ends. And I thought I thought the characters were really fascinating as well. So can you talk a bit about your involvement with them and, and what that actually entails? Yeah, sure. I visited an organization called One Taste in San Francisco, and they promote a practice called orgasmic meditation that's basically a woman and a partner 
um, invite each other to om, as they call it. And the woman takes off her pants. The partner strokes her clitoris for 15 minutes. And then they, they share feelings that they had and then they both get dressed and go about their day and the idea is it's a sexual experience that's not masturbation and it's not intercourse and it's not where a woman can experience her body and think about sexuality outside of any narrative of dating or romance um, and can kind of just ponder her physical experience of sex without any expectation of reciprocation or pressure to, um, you know, have some amazing orgasm. She can just be. Um, and it comes, the people that run the organization are pretty evangelistic about it. Um, some people in the Bay Area have said that they're cultish. I don't know. I'm I'm on, I'm on the fence about that, but it, they definitely um, come out of a culture. They come from the human potential movement in California, and they definitely have a lot of, um, you know, I don't know if you guys have heard of Est, but this idea of that the way to become who you really are is you have to break down all of your conditioning. There's a there's a little bit of that, but I went into this very skeptical and very annoyed by the whole scene, honestly, <laughs> and I left it. Um, still feeling that way and then a couple months passed and I realized it had been a really profound experience and I was actually really grateful that I did it so which is what they kept predicting would happen which was kind of annoying, oh, that's so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> you know but yeah sometimes it's it's worth it to you can try these things without <laughs> losing yourself yeah I found it interesting reading about I mean I know I've got some friends who practice it here and I think it's slightly less cultish here than it is there but it, it I found it interesting that it's it has to be so sort of safely boundaried off yeah it's all about creating a container in which you can because everybody's role is very specific and the time limit is defined and you know the woman is not supposed to offer any kind of reciprocal satisfaction to the person stroking her so yeah it's really everybody knows what they're supposed to do and that creates a, a space where you just can feel, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the other chapters that I really loved was uh, the one on polyamory. Um, and you follow this amazing woman, Elizabeth, to, you call her Elizabeth, yeah. um, who I love, you have a little line at the beginning of the chapter where you say your friend has warned you that polyamorous people are very confident. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, they, and they all are. It's, it's yeah. fascinating. Um, yeah, I just hung out with them in San Francisco um, a couple weeks ago and they're, they're just, yeah, they're just really well-adjusted people. <laughs> <laughs> How did you find this couple? It was an accident. I was... I was hanging out with a friend and, and telling her about the book. It was actually not even, it was kind of a new friend, somebody I just met in San Francisco. And she said, oh, you have to meet these young polyamorous that I know they're all really good looking and they work at Google and they're like these young corporate sex people. And <laughs> that interested me. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, I met with Elizabeth first, um, not her real name, but... And she just was so open. She just had no qualms about telling me everything. And it was really, um, you know, it was really nice to find somebody like that. Um, and 
as you say, it's we don't usually associate sex and people who are open about sex with people who work at tech companies. Um, and that seems to be an interesting new direction that these things are moving, that that polyamory can be a sort of a logical choice that people are making rather than free love, sort of hippy-dippy um, kind of thing, which I think, especially in America, um, free love is is cordoned off in that way sometimes. Yeah, and that was the thing that really interested me about them is they were people who had really achieved every metric of success. Um, they'd all gone to really good colleges. They were, you know, when I met them, they were in their early 20s. They were young and, you know, had these really good jobs and just all of it. And so it was interesting to me because I came from a slightly... um about seven or eight old years older than them. And for me, you know, the metric of success for my sexuality was marriage, really. I mean, you know, I, and and so it was, I was like, oh, these are not radical people necessarily. Maybe they are, maybe I now think that they are more than I did then. But they definitely, um, you know, they hadn't broken a lot of rules. They were people that had, really stayed in sync with what was expected of them by their parents, except then in this one area, they, um, and also in doing drugs. Um, those are the two things that they kind of surprised me. And yeah, and I realized, and people have written about this, that there was in the, in the new West Coast corporate culture that has become, you know, some of the biggest companies in America, there is this merging of the counterculture the ideals of the counterculture from the 60s and this new um, corporate culture. And it, it's interesting to observe. Yeah, especially for me as a British reader, because that whole San Francisco Google Plex kind of fantasy, to me, that was a bit like reading science fiction. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's incredible that there's this community that combines, like Carrie was saying, a kind of old school hippie free love with this, you know, shiny computer-based technology, which I think, you know, plays into a lot of, of what you explore in the book when you're looking at porn and screens and chatterbait and all this kind of stuff. How Google is, like, Google is the mediator of contemporary sexuality. And so, I mean, think about what search terms people are typing into that little space bar to find these, you know, annals of the internet. Right, and they, you know, Google would never, the way all these companies are set up. You don't ever, you can pretend that none of, you know, none of that is there. And even just the banal that porn sites always have black screen backgrounds and and the sanitized internet has white screen backgrounds. And yeah. these, but it's really all part of the same thing. There's no <laughs> real cordoned off, <laughs> but we let ourselves think that it's like, secret yeah totally <laughs> part of the experience I guess I also wanted to ask you because I thought this was really interesting when you talked about pornography um about the relationship with these pornographic index terms that we all have that anyone who uses pornography is confronted by milf gangbang like blah 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 the proclivity of incest related terms I always find baffling because I don't really understand who's getting off on that but it it, it's so at odds with this, the clean and well-lit space that you talk about of kind of contemporary sexuality in, in some ways. And I wondered if you had any light to shed on that, you know, why these index terms don't seem to be changing to reflect the diversification of sexualities in that space. 
Well, I think so much of porn is about the taboos. So the more you can make the term sound like something sordid or something, it, you know, the more effective it is. I mean, it's funny. I say this in the book, but I was talking to a friend about it and I was like, I just don't get why MILF just can't be older woman porn. <laughs> right? <laughs> you totally. know? Or gangbang, why can't it just be group sex? <laughs> also, I mean, um, a lot of the women who feature on MILF porn are not even that much older. <laughs> no, they're like 30. Yeah. Um, no, and he was like, what, you're supposed to call a lightsaber a laser sword? <laughs> like, <laughs> 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 so, yeah, I think it's just... You know, and and sometimes I came to appreciate the writing of the porn sites because it's really like action verb. <laughs> it is. It's true. <laughs> so it's kind of effective. Um, but yeah, it. I don't know. I still maybe it, I just think that the terms could be like a little less silly. Um, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you spent a lot of this book in San Francisco, which gets back to the the idea of technology. Why did you choose that city? It was, you know, when I went there for the first time in 2012, the the consciousness of that these companies were going to be based there and they were going to create a new um, culture around them, I think was just, there was just, that realization was just starting and the city was really changing at that point. And so that was part of it. And then also San Francisco is just the place that people in the U people that are of any kind of sexual avant-garde or, or yeah, it's just always been the place where gay people go, where, where free thinkers go for some reason. And it's also a place where people like to articulate all their feelings. It has that earnest California openness so that's very helpful whereas in New York all of those communities exist but it's just kind of um, less out in the open and there's a lot more eye rolling and then for me personally I just would have been too self-conscious to explore any of this with people I know around <laughs> somehow needed to be among strangers mm -hmm. Do you get a sense at all, and I know this book is, is really about America, so it's okay if you don't know, but I, I was interested in the difference between what's happening in America and what's happening in Europe, for example. Um, in some ways, it seems that Europe has always been a bit more sexually open and experimental, um, and I wonder if, if there was any sort of dialogue between between the old world and the new. Yeah, I always think that because like I go to Berlin and I just see this freedom that people in America can't inhabit. But on the other hand, I think, you know, for many people, the expectations for marriage and family are the same. And there's just more, you're, they, it seems like people in Europe are just more pragmatic about um extramarital affairs and Americans are more idealistic and romantic about how their relationship should be, but that both of everybody is kind of still dealing with the same expectations. Um, yeah, but I, I do thinking of the UK, I think the UK is pretty similar to the U S in a lot of respects. I mean, it's people here are coupley. <laughs> people here are coupley. Speaking as someone who's uncoupled, people here are coupley. <laughs> No, but I think it's interesting um, to think about 
the United States and the United Kingdom in relation because in Britain we have the weirdest relationship with sex where there's on one level it's right out there it's carry on movies it's lovely jubbly booby woobies whatever Benny Hill fucked up stuff <laughs> is going on but there is this deep repression also that that I felt coming through in the book in your book that I recognized from here you know people who are uh yeah like sexually conformative and will defend that position because of a lack of understanding of what else might be out there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's, but you're right, you're, in terms of Europe, well, think about France historically, you know, you had your courtesan available out in the open, whatever, if you were in the court and stuff like that. It, it, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question, isn't it, really, to think about? Yeah. Um, can you, I, I, just to get back to some of the communities you, you went to, can you talk a bit about the porn shoot you went to? Because I was so interested in that. And um, <laughs> it was, it was um, they're doing something slightly different than the porn that I think somebody might encounter if they just Googled it, for instance. Yeah, I went to a shoot called Public Disgrace where the fantasy is a woman walks into a bar and the crowd in the bar... Um, sexually harasses her basically and um, she has sex with a a male performer and a woman dominatrix who you know and everybody's insulting her and they're allowed to touch her and grope her a kind of civilian audience of which I was a member Um, but all of this is being recorded as a fantasy to broadcast on the internet Um, and it's from the porn comes from um, kink.com, which is a pretty well-known BDSM fetish site. Um, so yeah, I was interested in that because it represented the worst nightmare of the anti-porn feminists. And yet it was being made by a woman. Um, her name's Princess Donna Delore. So I just wanted to look look at it <laughs> and know what why the people that made it were there and why, you know, you know, these were women and what it gave for them. Um, what, it, yeah. Yeah. It really reinforced for me how uh, desire and sexuality often isn't political. It can't be political because, um, you know, like feminism doesn't always align with what people desire and what they want to experience. And that really came out. Um, and I think, you know, we haven't really talked about gender yet, but that's um, a very present idea in this book about you you being a woman in these communities and and women in these communities and how they respond to different types of sexuality and and how that might look in the future yeah yeah when I went there I mean the main thing that the women there were telling me was some of them said you know it's about inhabiting this fear that you're taught to have the whole time to your whole life that you're supposed to be scared to walk home at home, you know, at night by yourself and, and you're just taught to be scared all the time. And so for them, the pursuit of this really extreme sexual experience in which kind of the worst thing could happen, but it was all under their control and they could stop it and start it was a kind of way of pursuing catharsis of some kind. Um, I think there's that again. I think that, the taboo um, makes the fantasy more powerful. So it's not that they want to live in a world where this happens to anybody, but for them, freedom was getting to experience the fantasy of the thing you're taught to be scared of. And that was really powerful to me. Mm. What came across to me in that that passage was 
the amount of um, connection that goes on off camera before and after this experience is set up. And actually what came through is that this is a community that's really loving and connected to one another and kind of present and emotionally switched on, which is not what you would imagine from watching just the short, you know, just the film without any of the rest of it. Yeah, and they totally needed to have really vanilla sex to get to the point where they could do all of this crazy stuff that would just be edited out. Yeah. Um, Well, on that note, (laughs) Emily, thank you so much for coming in today. Uh, The book is called Future Sex and it's published by Faber in January. I would really recommend it. Ditto. Thanks, guys. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright. And now, after our interview with Emily Witt, whose book is called Future Sex, we're talking about future sex. Dun, dun, dun. Um, so, uh, obviously, on a wider scale than just her book. Um, so, I think what we want to talk about today is how novelists and nonfiction writers have helped us envision the future of sex. Um, and I think that can take a number of different paths. The first and perhaps most obvious one is in speculative fiction. So what came to mind when when you thought about future sex? Oddly, n- no books. It was all films um, and images. And I think that's a really, uh, you know, the relationship between the visual and sexuality and then the visual as it is inscribed in literature. But the first, honestly, the first things I thought of were Barbarella and Star Trek. <laughs> these, oh, and I'm talking about the original with William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy. These two visions of future sexuality you know I took it very literally in my mind initially and um I just did a quick google and my god the sexy aliens from Star Trek in the 60s where I don't I haven't experienced those it's really I mean it's fucking depressing (laughs) they're babes don't get me wrong they're babes but it's 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 the bond girl kind of female sexuality and they're all there in you know weird imaginings of futuristic sexiness that is so old-fashioned and there's nothing futuristic about it at all um so that yeah it's in that way that science fiction so often reflects the way we live now rather than alternate realities exactly and actually what i was thinking when i was watching it and barbarella similarly they're, they're um, visions of a future sexuality that are, are designed to comfort and placate the heteronormative drive of the present. So they're not imagining anything new or different or exciting or challenging. In fact, they're there to be like, yo, guys, don't worry. Even in the future on Mars, they're still submissive eventually, you know? Um, so but that, of course, um, there are some really exciting authors who have been who have been challenging those norms, um, especially, I think, since the 80s or so, um, when people started thinking about sexuality, gender, race, um, and the ways that fiction might be able to access that. Um, I think you made a lot of interesting points in that. I want to get back to this idea of film versus books and and writing about sexuality versus showing it, but let's park that to the side for now and um, just talk about some of the authors who have challenged the sort of Barbarella view. And and I should say that that was also happening in fiction, especially the sort of very bounded genre sci-fi of the 60s was all 
sexy aliens with big titties. Mm. Um, and that's not, well, I've read that that is that because I have not read any. <laughs> I Science fiction is not necessarily my uh, strong It's not point. your jam, is it? No, it's not really my jam. But do you know what is my jam is Margaret Atwood. Margaret Atwood um, is Who comes up too. on the show all the time. But, you know, she's essentially writing science fiction. We, we like to call it speculative fiction because we like to pretend. It's like saying graphic novel instead of comics. Oh, it's because um, of inverted snobbery and all the rest of it, yeah, isn't it? It's yeah. nonsense, basically. Um, but I immediately thought of The Handmaid's Tale, um, published in the 80s, 80s. I think, um, which is taking the sort of Madonna whore dichotomy to its logical end in a in a future society in the United in the United States, and it's not only a good story; it's it's really smart on gender and politics and sex, and it's a it's a very dystopic uh, ver- view of future sex. Even though it's quite progressive in its politics, it's not progressive in its vision. Yeah, it's it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. That book because it feels like weird, bizarre parts of it I think we even said on the show last month like feels like it's kind of manifesting um but you're right it is I want to read it again now because I first read it as a teenager and it like blew me away you know when your mind is so fertile and ready and you're first noticing sexual politics I guess and your relationship to them especially as a young woman blah 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 um but I yeah you're right it is it's a very dystopic um Vision. I, I was thinking about um, Anthony Burgess. I couldn't help mm. thinking about Anthony Burgess. The clock, A Clockwork Orange, obviously, which has this very violent um, vision of sex and its connection to violence and the visual. Um, but also I was reading about, I haven't read this book, I have to admit, but it's called The Wanting Seed. It's by Burgess as well. And this is a dystopian vision that focuses on overpopulation, which made me think of Atwood as well, because her her environmentalist drive is always present. Um, and in, in Burgess's book, governments are authoritarian and homosexuality is glorified and practiced as a means of population control. And there's also a cannibalist strike running through it. And I want to read it because I wonder really what's going on in that you know it sounds very controversial to me in some ways actually and quite restricted and limited in its view but I just thought it was very interesting to have an example of someone who's taking sex away from the procreative element which is always present and the 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 drive to to procreate in order to keep the species running you know as a kind of there's a separation to be made there that is complicated and difficult to talk about I think mm. And that's a similar theme that's picked up in uh, Huxley's Brave New World, which was published in the 30s. Um, it's all about separating sex from from procreation. And um, in his vision, that is very problematic, even though, um, you know, uh, sexual pleasure is encouraged in that society. But, um, yeah, it's... I, I think that's a really good sort of testing ground for the different ways that sex manifests itself because it that is one of the sort of central push and pulls of sexuality is it's it's pleasurable but it's also sort of it's about the forwarding of the species um and those are often very much at odds with each other yeah and separated i mean i think that an imagining of a true sexual dystopia would be one where no one's having any sex at all (laughs) where procreation is happening in test tubes and the human body doesn't need to be involved in that in any way and sexual pleasure has been edited out, you know. Um, I was also thinking of Under the Skin by Michelle Faber, which was made into the film with Scarlett Johansson. But uh, I've not read the book, but I found the film very captivating. And 
I want to read the book. It's on my list of things to read because I think you've recommended it before in the show, actually. Yeah, it's fabulous. It sounds fabulous. But also there's this kernel of quite an old-fashioned idea of the devouring feminine, you know, the vagina dentata, the fear of a woman's sexual potency, um, which is very persistent in film and in literature. You know, it's a, it's a trope that kind of won't seem to go away. Um, and I think, you know, the vagina ends up functioning as this symbol of crossover between pleasure and the procreative drive, you know, because it's the one whole, but you can do your motive for doing things with it can be very different. Mm. Um, do we have any utopias? Do we have any authors who whose we uh, agree with, the, we both agree with their politics and see a vision of future sex that actually looks acceptable and, and exciting to us? I found it really hard to find any examples. I mean, the only one that came to my mind, and I know she came to yours as well, was Octavia Butler. Um, who we've talked about before on, a sh on the show, actually, quite, quite a long time ago now, but she has this, um, she creates this race of creatures that are pansexual and polysexual and their sexuality isn't connected to gender until puberty where they are able to choose which end they kind of get fixed at, at, as inhabiting. Um, but no, I really, really struggled to find anything that presented a sexual utopia that I endorsed or felt pleased about <laughs> yeah charlotte perkins gilman um I, I haven't read this uh and i actually just read about it i know her as the author of the yellow wallpaper which of course is that um famous i think it's sort of between a short story and a novella about a woman who um goes mad slowly um and it, and and it its larger themes have to do with the repression of the female and um, hysteria and all of these things. Um, she was writing before her time, um, and it seems as though she was she was writing before her time in a book called Her Land, published in 1915, um, which is about an all-female society where they figured out how to reproduce themselves. So there's no need of men. But I mean, we're not we're not end of men feminists oh are no we? hell no 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 yeah. no men so, are great so i'm not endorsing her land it's an interesting vision well you know the the one actually that is worth talking about and I, this is awful i can't remember the name of the author but it's out at the moment it's called the power um and it's about a society where women have developed this ability to shoot electric currents out of their fingers and they have this skein in their forehead and it's about basically envisaging a world it's written by a woman and I, I'm sorry I can't remember her name that's awful um it's about envisage, envisaging a world where women have sexual power combined with um the power of violence and is an interesting exercise. Um, I read it recently. It's an interesting exercise in flipping the coin and seeing what happens when women take control. And actually, the the culture that she envisages is equally violent. And you know, it's it's an, it's it's worth reading. It's an interesting text. I have problems with it, of course, because I'm like that. But it's I I would recommend it. Mm. But it's dystopic, not utopic. Let's talk a bit about nonfiction, um, because I think nonfiction has been so instrumental in defining the way that we think about sex. I think that was really brought out in Emily's discussion. Um, and I know that she, in writing Future Sex, was also thinking about Thy Neighbor's Wife by Gay Talese, um, which he published in 1985, which was a, an exploration of the sexual sort of mores of the day, which shocked a lot of people because it reveals that... Um, 
a lot was going on that people didn't know about. And there are plenty of, I, I know about Americans mainly because that's my background, but you think about Kinsey, Masters and Johnson, all of these people who have sort of cracked open uh, the quote-unquote secret worlds of sexuality and um, envisioned other futures for people just by looking at the present. Yeah, I think what's really interesting with that as well is a lot of the texts that started out doing that were written by men, heterosexual or homosexual men, and then later those books started to be written by women as well. And there's this whole, I mean, if you go into any big bookshop, there's a whole section on finding your orgasm and like learning how to decode your own genitals as a woman. Um, and I think that's, I think it's generally incredibly positive, you know, because we're still dealing with the culture that's set up as patriarchal and, you know, um, heterosexual and heteronormative. And because sex still in the Western world occupies this space of taboo, which is insane and weird, but it's true. Literature becomes the way in just as like, you know, um, all those books that were banned in the 20s and the 30s, that Lady Chatterley's Lover, all that kind of thing, that was the first way of finding your way into uh, sexual desires and illicit things. And now it's more like you can buy the manual, you can buy the book about sex, like The Joy of Sex started off that whole trend. And I think it's fabulous. I think it's fabulous that there's so much scope for people to inform themselves and to go on journeys like the one that Emily experienced herself in, in writing her book. Um, yeah, we, um, a, a lot of my friends and I, I, I think we grew up just before porn was very readily accessible on the internet. Um, and a lot of my friends and I talk about our first sexual experiences were reading sort of like our moms would give us novels and not really think about the sort of explicit sexual content in them. And then you'd be reading Snow Falling on Cedars and be like, whoa, why do I feel so funny? <laughs> oh it's so funny because my first way in was through J.G. Ballard's Crash. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's a very... Yeah, I went in hard. Yeah. I was about 12 or 13, I think. And it was, I remember it blew me away. You know, it was so sexy, but so raw and violent and dark and I remember reading it literally under the covers I stole it from my mom's bookshelf yeah um and I think you know getting back to that point about uh writing versus images I think it's it's sex is so um you know it, it it's so immediate that in some ways it works better visually and I think pornography is is case in point in that respect but um the immersiveness of literature when done right. And of course, we've just had the Bad Sex Awards, which I disagree with for many reasons, but I do think they point out how difficult it really is to write about sex. But when it's done well, there's sort of nothing better than than being involved. Right, absolutely. And that's it, because it really does allow you to be involved. You're not, um, your view, your your position is not actually necessarily on the outside. You intend to experience it through the sensations of a character, whereas pornography you're always, if you're responding to visual stimulus in that way, your gaze, your point of view is always other, it's always separate. Apart from actually in some of the insane, uh, you know, 3D tech porn stuff that's going on now where you really can inhabit the body of a muscle bound, whatever. Yeah, that terrifies it's me It's so bit. crazy. Yeah. I've been reading quite a lot about it recently, actually, and it really is like, it's fascinating and, and weird. Um, but I think that, yeah, I think that writing about sex is going to be something that will be compelling to human beings forever ever more and reading about it and getting turned on it's all so um fundamental to our, our enjoyment of our of our species of ourselves of our identities um i'm very pro and i'm like you i think the bad sex awards are you know ridiculous right on 
Okay, let's let's say what are our favorite books about future sex? What's well, yours, Octavia? Mine is very famous and um it was written in 1928. Uh, it's the history of the eye, the story of the eye, sorry, L'histoire de l'oeil by Georges Bataille, who I've spoken about, I think, quite a lot. Um, he was a writer who was sort of on and off in, involved with the Surrealists, and he wrote this treatise on eroticism called L'Erotisme, which is sort of an anthropological study that, you know, today is very old fashioned and heteronormative and all the rest of it, but was still very revolutionary. Anyway, this is the short, short little book, short story, novella, whatever you want to call it. It's not for the faint hearted or the squeamish. I love it. I think it's exquisite. And I think it's really exciting in terms of where literature can take you that visuals can't take you in, in exploring sexuality. Um, because it's really about uh, texture very much. Um, this character, Simone, has this fetish for viscous liquids like egg yolk and cat's milk and urine and obviously blood and semen come into it. And it's famous for the fact that she likes to insert hard and soft-boiled eggs into her vagina and her anus. Um, and then something happens that involves some bull's testicles and, and the eye of the title, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. You should read it to find out. I'm really out. just enjoying hearing you say cat's milk. Bull's testicles. <laughs> sort of weird. We're getting a this, babe. Yeah. <laughs> Things are getting a bit heavy here in yeah. the studio. Um, it's fabulous. It's weird as fuck. And, you know, if you are not uh, into that kind of thing, you will not enjoy it. But if you're interested in the limits of language and, and, and um, imagination and kind of reading something that encourages you to reflect on your own sexual desire and how it is pulled around and, and what actually constitutes it. It's fascinating. Um, it, it, yeah, it basically completely explodes the frame. And I think it's really interesting in this discussion because the narrative is not the point in any way. The sex is the point and the eroticism of taboo is the point. Um, and uh, yeah, it's great to read along with Susan Sontag's essay, The Pornographic Imagination, which is often published in with the with the story but yeah i recommend it hugely bjork was really inspired by it as mm. well for anyone who wants a musical way in um yeah maybe you could listen to bjork while reading it oh my god yeah blow my mind so i'm going full dystopia and it's really not positive nor sexy so <laughs> okay. i don't know what that says about my sexuality but anyway um <laughs> i'll call freud quickly right now um but i I wanted, it was partially because I've been thinking about George Saunders, um, whose first novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, I'm just about to begin a proof of. He's one of my favorite writers, and I just cannot wait to read this novel. Um, and so when I was thinking about future sex, it reminded me of one of his short stories. He's really a, primarily a short story writer and has been for a very long time, and I think has sort of perfected the medium. Um, he, had a, he had a collection called The Tenth of December. It was published a couple of years ago. Uh, which is is just masterful, and I think I might have even uh, recommended it on the show before. Um, so this is one of the stories in that collection. Um, it's called Escape from Spiderhead, um, and it's a sort of dystopian future test laboratory in which a man named Jeff is subjected to a number of sort of... Uh, formulae that are pumped into his body um, and tested how he reacts to them. Um, and... Yes, and, and these drugs are drugs that um, make you more verbose, for instance, or um, the one they're really trying to test is one that makes you fall in love with people. And, of course, um, things go 
horribly wrong. Uh, <laughs> it's like a Black Mirror episode, actually, but it's it's funnier, it's more nuanced, it's more devastating and, and more human, I think. And I, I would really recommend it. Sounds great. I've never read any of his work and you made me want to oh, read he's, it. He's amazing. Yay. Okay, well, we'll be back in a little bit with Emily Witt to give our book recommendations. All right, this is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt here with Octavia Bright and with Emily Witt, who is back for our book recommendations. So Octavia, do you want to start, please? I most certainly do. Um, I'm recommending a little short story collection that I've been really enjoying at the moment. I haven't got to the end of it yet, um, which is also a great thing because I'm loving it and I don't want it to end. It's called Pond and it's by Claire Louise Bennett and it was published in Ireland early this year and it's been around people have been talking about it. I think um, Fitzcarraldo editions did it here, right? right? Exactly. Yeah. And it's a gorgeous, gorgeous book. Um, it's made up of 20 stories. And I guess you could call some of them microfiction more than short stories, because sometimes they're only a couple of sentences long, and then other times they're several pages. Um, and they, they appear to be all told by the same female character, who is living in this kind of reclusive r- rural world, where she's experiencing the world around her in a very sensorial, physical way. Um, and we kind of, you kind of meet her from the inside out, which I think is wonderful. You never find out her name. You never find out what she looks like. It's, those things are not what Bennett's focusing on. Um, and she said in an interview, in solitude, you don't need to make an impression on the world. So the world has some opportunity to make an impression on you, which I loved. And really gives you a sense of what the book is trying to do, I think. Um, there's lots of, smells and textures and mud. Um, Mud is kind of a character in itself and in this sort of ancient primeval way that speaks to the unconscious mind. And yeah, I love it. I think she's a really, really talented writer. Um, And I kind of want her to write a novel next. I want to be in her writing in a more fulsome way, I guess. Um, So yeah, I recommend it very highly. Sounds brilliant. And it's such a beautiful package. I've seen people reading it on the tube and I sort of just want to take it and touch it yeah it's got a blue cover it's a divine object yeah emily do you want to give your recommendation yeah sure i thought i would recommend something sex related um i'm i've been reading a book called unlimited intimacy by an academic named tim dean and it's an ethnography of barebacking of gay barebacking subculture so men who have sex with men um without using condoms, um, often in casual or anonymous settings. Um, and it it's blowing my mind. It's a really good book because it's, it's, first of all, it's a really nuanced consideration of risk and health. So anybody who chooses to do things where you're risking your health for whatever reason, either eating certain foods or smoking cigarettes or taking drugs, it kind of applies the ideas within it apply to a lot of um, different situations. Um, And also just kind of, yeah, the, you know, why, why we pursue certain extremities um, in favor of 
feeling present of our in our lives instead of minimizing our our encounters with the world and um yeah I've learned a lot also about how to write about sex that you might never want to have or that you that somehow feels repellent or scary to you how to think about it in a way that um you know you're not judging it as good or bad but you're allowing yourself to consider why it's there and what it offers to the world great um I'm going to recommend a very different book, <laughs> um, also by an academic, though. So interesting. Um, and I've been reading it sort of before bed each night, and it's making me really happy right now. It's called Watching the English. I don't know if you guys have heard of this. It's no. um, it's by so, uh, an English social anthropologist named Kate Fox, um, first published in 2008. I think they recently came out with a new edition, sort of updated and added content. Um, it was a bestseller when it was first published as well um and it's a book about um the hidden rules of english behavior but in in you know it, she uses serious methodology and she's worked on this for many years but it is just for someone who's lived here for eight years and sort of thought i had the culture figured out um and then it's just been so fascinating to learn what I've been doing totally wrong. And a lot of, I, she lived in America for a long time and there are lots of Americans around here. So there are quite a lot of um, sections about American faux pas, um, which I have been making all the time. <laughs> it's like, I like contain my love. Yeah, it's so funny. So, so things like, um, I always just agree with people's, I don't agree with it, but when people are self-deprecating, I'll be like, oh, well, you know, I'm sure it's fine. But <laughs> they're not they're not being self-deprecating because they think that's actually the truth, you know? No, babe, it's the dance. It's the merry dance. <laughs> yeah, I am not in on the dance. Um, or things like people will talk about the weather being really hot or really cold, and I'll just be like, well, you know, in America, it's much hotter, so I don't see why you're complaining, apparently really a no-no. <laughs> because what they're really trying to tell you is they feel turbulent inside and this yeah. inner turbulence yeah. represents so the weather. The weather is this sort of um, way of starting conversation. It's it's the perfect way to make small talk. It's the safe space. Yes, From exactly. where to go somewhere much more scary. So you know all this instinctually, but I think it's, you know, English people obviously have enjoyed reading it as well, just to, I think, seeing your own culture reflected back to you is is always great. But it's, it's written in a really accessible style, but still feels sort of rigorous and um true so i literally I will love that you're reading to read it. this it. although it's making me really nervous about all the social <laughs> interactions that i have now um no babe just do you yeah. you do you so well <laughs> exactly <laughs> thanks guys <laughs> Um, so I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much to Emily Witt, who's Thank been a fabulous guest, um, whose book Future Sex is published by Faber, and to Eddie Knight for production and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And on ncs.live, you can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please say hi. We really love to hear from you. Yes. And we'll be back next month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.